0: Hi, I'm Samuel.
1: And I'm Bentley Boyd. And this is the re View
0: Podcast.
1: So welcome to our uh, first look at monster movies. Uh, Samuel and I, a few weeks ago, went to see the new King Kong. Uh, and I'm old enough as a just-turned-50 Gen Xer that I remember uh, back before cable television, before on-demand you know, viewing where you could buy a tape of a movie... Uh, I'm old enough that I used to love seeing old classic movies with my dad, right? Uh, My dad was not the uh, silent generation that fought World War II. He was a little too young for that, but he also wasn't a boomer. He was a little too old for that. So it was kind of a weird mix, but I was certainly influenced by the canon of our culture that the boomers set. And King Kong, the first one, right, the black and white one with Fay Ray. Was absolutely a part of our cultural canon because it created this whole genre of monster movies. Mm-hmm. And I remember seeing it for the first time when a bunch of dad's art students were over at our house. And back then, before cable, before on demand, uh, you know, you just kind of watched these things on a Saturday or a Sunday afternoon, right? The local TV stations would just fill airtime uh, back when sports was not such a big programming deal. They would just throw on these old movies because they were cheap. And that was one thing that absolutely affected what we now consider to be our movie canon. So here we are, we're just sort of hanging out. It might even have been, uh, you know, like a holiday party, maybe over Mm -hmm. Thanksgiving, I seem to remember. But the house was full of young people, you know, boomer children, Mm -hmm. uh, art children of my dad. And then I was, you know, eight or nine or ten or something like that. And King Kong comes on. And we're watching it probably on a black and white TV, little TV. Nobody had home theaters back then. But I was paying attention because I saw them paying attention. It was exactly how you pass culturally important art from one generation to the other, right? I saw my dad making jokes about it. It was sort of my first experience with what we now call MST3K. Yeah. <laughs> so all these smart people, these college students and my dad were watching this old black and white movie from before when they were adults, and they were making jokes about it, like there's one scene where they're all taken to the African village, right, and, and the natives are all running around, and it's all this stereotypical stuff, of uh, voodoo, and you know, the African dances, and of course it's terrible cultural appropriation, it's not accurate, but they're all going crazy in the way Hollywood would think, and I remember... Uh, somebody saying, well, it looks like a faculty meeting. You know? <laughs> and my dad loved that, and everybody burst into laughter, and that was my first experience with you know, taking a piece of art as important, but still sort of filtering it through your own lens. And mm-hmm. that's why I raised you on Mystery Science Theater 3000, which yeah. will be a different podcast, but we are doing a podcast about these things because of MST3K and this idea that you don't just take the cultural art as it is, yeah, you have to judge it for yourself before you pass it on to the next generation, mm-hmm. because some things that were in the Canon will fall out, yeah, but some things will take on new meaning. it's the reason why we keep getting origin stories about Batman and Superman, you know because these folk tales have to be reinterpreted each generation, and King Kong is a really good example of how one basic Idea one story has been filtered through all these ge- different generations. Yes. So tell me about the first time you saw the original King Kong.
0: So the original King, I feel like I saw it, uh, it, it I, in my early my early college career at Grinnell. I had very few friends starting off. I knew nobody. I was out in the middle of nowhere. It was me and the corn and fifteen hundred liberal arts students. So I went to the library a lot, and I checked out a lot of movies. A lot, a lot of movies. <laughs> And I would, uh, if they were older movies, what I would do, especially if like the special effects maybe weren't super high up there, what I would do is I'd kind of watch them out of the corner of my eyes. I painted. I would shift uh, back and forth between that. And this is how I consumed a lot of things. I think this is how I first saw, if I remember correctly, um Terminator 2. Because you had actually never shown me Terminator no, 2. No, I didn't like it that much. Yeah, if we're gonna get really controversial right off the bat, we don't like Terminator 2. Uh, look out! Anyway, um, but I saw uh, This is also how I saw Neon Genesis Evangelion, which will be a solo podcast I'll have to do at some point. Dad will just leave the room. It's in the canon. It's in the canon. Anyway. But I saw the first one, and I had actually seen the very first version of King Kong I had ever seen. I saw them completely out of order. Oh. I saw the 2005 Peter Jackson one with you first. First time I saw King Kong. Second one I saw was on late night television at my grandmother's house. uh, The 1976 version. Yeah. He climbs the Twin Towers. Yeah, yeah. Then I see the 1933 version, and now I have seen the 2017 King Kong Skull Island. Um, And I remember being actually pretty impressed with the 1930s one. I mean, it has that great Ray uh, Ray Harryhausen uh, claymation animation, and I am, uh, thank goodness, sophisticated enough to not look at that and go, oh, it looks so fake. I understand the artistic... uh, motivation it must have taken to just repose at the microscopic level basically, these limbs, and make this animation look fluid, and it does, it looks good, like when he fights that dinosaur with a really long neck, you know, the brontosaurus, which by the way is not a carnivore, but whatever, He's fighting this dinosaur, and like dinosaur's like going, and it's like moving its lips as it's yeah. fighting him. It's all these little details. It's yeah. always about the details. Then he throws it off the cliff, and it totally becomes a still image. But whatever, <laughs> it's oh, it's all great.
1: So I think the fact that you like to play Warhammer forty k and paint the figures with yeah. such a, you're a brilliant painter of very fine detail that I could never do, and I think that must help you appreciate Herringhausen.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Harryhausen is. Um, I, I, it's, it's hard to say that he's underrated at this point because the guys at ILM really do clearly love Harryhausen's stuff. Uh, the successors of Harryhausen are still working in Hollywood today.
1: Well, um, and by the way, that's why that joke shows up in Monsters, Inc. Yeah. Right? They go to Harryhausen's restaurant. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so one reason why we like to talk about this stuff is to see how the canon gets passed down. There are a yeah. lot of people who watch something like Monsters, Inc., who don't understand the reference, but yeah. we do, and we want you to.
0: Yes. If for no other reason, listen to our podcast so you can get more of the Disney Pixar jokes. I mean, you'll just... <laughs> your, your enjoyment of this stuff will go up dramatically the more you understand. Um, but, you know, out of all those versions, uh, obviously I think I'm a little biased because it's, it's made by a member of clearly my generation. Um, but I think which I one? like the 2017 one, is what I was winding up to saying. I think my favorite of these on a purely, okay. like, just which one I would I rewatch next?
1: Okay, so we'll get to Skull Island. Yeah, I'm uh, jumping the gun. You, you're jumping the gun, uh, but a spoiler alert. Spoilers. I liked it too. Yeah. I liked it too. But what I think is fascinating is not only are we getting these different generations of the, the story, right? So I was about 10. When the 70s version came out with Jessica Lange, and it was all very much centered on the oil crisis, right? They're looking for oil uh, when they find Kong. And, you know, the Twin Towers were pretty new at that point, less than uh, five years old, I think. So it felt very current, but they were basically doing, you know, a 70s version of the 1930s original. But now, enough time has passed, you know, what Jackson did, yeah, the first one you saw that was, it it kind of wiped away what happened in the 70s, and it was a retelling of the 1930s movie. It was set in the 30s. It was a modern retelling of the 30s movie. And now we've kind of leapfrogged again. The current Skull Island movie is redoing the 70s version of Kong. Yeah, right. in a weird way. In, In a weird way, it is not hearkening back to the original 1930s Kong. It's really, it's set in the 70s, and it's redoing the tone Of the 1970s De Laurentiis
0: Kong. I mean, the the ship that they take off of, the helicopter attack squadron goes off of, is like a one-to-one to to the tanker that they take to (laughs) Skull Island in in the 70s. It's an oil
1: tanker. So I, as a child of the 70s, have a lot of reason to like the new Skull Island because it's a remake of the Kong I first saw.
0: Yeah, and as somebody who was born in 1992, who is very much a millennial, I can visually tell that this was created by somebody of my generation, so I can appreciate it also on that level as well.
1: So, I want to hear what you think of the two remakes specifically. I'm I'm sort of shocked that Samuel, you know, I think liked the 70s Kong relatively. It has a
0: weird, it has a, it's very difficult. It's one of those things where I like it, but I think it's going to be very difficult to try and convince anyone who's not in on it to like it as well. Yeah, no, I think you're Um, right. It's
1: it's a hard sell. But but so you got. The Peter Jackson Kong yeah. after you watched The Lord of the Rings, so you loved Jackson's storytelling. I Love
0: Jackson's storytelling technique, but I think I'll have I need to rewatch the 2005 Kong. I, I think I've seen it since it was in the theaters, or maybe when it first came out on DVD. I might have rewatched it. Okay. but I remember sitting in that theater and thinking, I love everything he's putting on the screen. Oh my God, is this three and a half hours? Like <laughs> the the worst instincts of Peter. I'm a first name basis with Peter Jackson. Um, because of your generation. Yeah, the worst instincts of Peter are starting to manifest themselves in Kong. Yeah. This is the perfect midpoint between the brilliance of the original Lord of the Rings trilogy and the mess that is the Hobbit. Oh my God, my eyes are <laughs> bleeding just thinking about it. Like it's he in you can see it perfectly. It's a perfect bridge between that. He's yeah. doing the hard character work. Yeah. The script is good. The casting is awesome putting jack black in the sleazy director role is awesome it's It's, i liked
1: it because it was kind of a meta kong movie yeah right so i i actually did love jack black in that movie i actually like i like the jackson uh kong i do own it uh, on blu-ray um i like the sound that he did like when there's that final fight at the top of the empire state building Um, You know, when when the biplanes are coming around and they're shooting, it sounds like a war movie. Like you can hear their high caliber bullets hitting the metal of the skyscraper.
0: You're going to hear a lot of appreciation for sound design on this podcast as we keep going forward because we really love that stuff.
1: It's part of the storytelling.
0: Um, Speaking of details, I want to get this note in. I might forget it as we go on. Another thing that I really love about the 1976 version is that it is the only version in, that I can remember in my memory that actually shows how they get Kong to the mainland. Oh, Every other yeah. version of Kong, it's like, we've tranquilized him, fade to black, opening night on Broadway, and it's like, <laughs> how did you get the 600-pound gorilla yeah. from here to New York? Like
1: A mistake that the Simpsons episode also
0: makes. Like, it's... it's but the brilliance of bringing a big freaking oil tanker is that you believe they can shove him in there <laughs> and what's awesome is they show you a scene of them in transit and he's screaming he's banging up against yeah. the walls yeah. and what's hilarious is you have these ship workers they even think about how the ship guys have to feed him yeah. they dump what must be like half a ton of bananas down yeah. there because they're like what else do we feed him? <laughs> and they're dumping bananas on there and there's like a panning shot across the deck where they just grabbed up all the bananas they could find on the island hoping that this thing won't starve on the way to the mainland yeah. or kill Kill them. Yeah, or kill them. Like the seventy-six one is not a perfect movie by any stretch of the imagination, but it has attention to detail, and that's half the battle.
1: And it has some of the classics of other uh, action movies and stuff at the time. What I like about it is when I say it's a seventies movie, it's not just these things like, you know, the new World Trade Center at that time, but it has some of those seventies tropes. Like there, it, there's a conspiracy going on. It's got Jeff Bridges, you know, it's it's got Yeah the, man. Yeah, it's got the jerk uh, who represents the corporation. You know, I mean, Charles Grodin in there is a, yeah. is a complete jerk. Yeah. So it's got great stuff in it. I'm glad that you like
0: it. Yeah, I do like it. Um, but definitely, um, I think out of the two remakes of the 76 and the 2005 one, and boy, this, like, members of my generation are not going to believe me when I say this, I would pick the 76 version because the 76 version purely just for, like, constraints of, of, of time and, and the acting. Mm. Like, the script isn't entirely there. I think the script in 2005 Kong is probably tighter. Mm. But it, the 2005 Kong also takes a lot of detours to get where it's trying to go. Yeah. I mean, that scene yeah. with... Uh, to, to compare it, to, to cheat a little bit, and compare it to uh, Skull Island. Skull Island has a great scene with a big scary bug that's trying to eat all of them. Mm-hmm. And great scene, very tense, has high stakes... Has consequences, mm-hmm. three, four, maybe five minutes Yeah, it's a very fast scene. The scene with them in the chasm at the bottom of Skull Island where they're fighting all the creepy crawlies is like 15 minutes long in the yeah. Peter Jackson version, and it is just an excuse for his special effects guys, the way to workshop, mm-hmm. to show, look at all these cool bugs we made, giant grasshoppers and worms that eat Andy circus. and it's like, I know you guys are talented. I don't need to be reminded. I know you guys have put a lot of work into this, I think this is too much. You could yeah. have just had maybe just one of those enemies, maybe just the giant grasshoppers, or maybe right. just the eels that like eat you like one limited time. Like that's cool stuff. Or maybe do all of them, but have it be five minutes, three minutes.
1: So that's a real question as we go forward in considering what's in the canon. And I, this is why I think the Kong movies are a great filter, a, a great a lens to consider this question. So obviously, in the last. 15, 20 years, the computer animation has gotten really good to the point where now Hollywood, in trying to sell movies globally, they're cutting out the words, right? The script is getting shorter and shorter and shorter, right? Because action is something anybody can appreciate. That's why the Fast and Furious movies are are successful. They're trying to make movies that can be understood by Chinese people. Right, people all over the globe who don't necessarily speak English.
0: It is a global market now. Yeah,
1: it's a global market. So that's why you're, you know, a lot of Americans who don't think too hard about the film industry are like, well, I don't understand why there's not a lot of story going on. It's all explosions. Well, that's why because that's their business model. So something like the Jackson King Kong, right? It's it's you can see they're struggling to get the balance where. They want to do the character work. They want to have memorable lines. It's clearly an American movie. Okay, Kong is an American folk figure.
0: Even though Payday himself is from New Zealand. but
1: Right, exactly. But he's making a yeah. movie about an American character. It's like making a Superman movie. Kong yeah. is as big as Superman. Yes. But he's giving in to this desire to just have these huge action set pieces because the computer animators can do it. Yes. And if you give in to that, suddenly you've got a three-hour movie.
0: Yeah. Or you've or you got have, The Hobbit. Or you have a three-movie Hobbit trilogy. It could have been an hour and a half, one movie! Yeah. Well, I don't understand. Anyway. Uh, so, um... I think thematically. This yeah. is something I, I have to bring up before I forget. Again, I know I'm jumping ahead to Skull Island, but thematically, a lot of parallels, not just in the aesthetics, but thematically, between the 76 version and the 2017 version. Well, let's let's go there. Go ahead. I mean... It's very, like, in the 33, both in the original 19th, I think 33, Kong Mm -hmm. movie, and the 2005 remake of that movie, the morality of it is the guys who have come to the island are not necessarily good, but there are individuals of that party who are good people, Mm -hmm. who are trying to do this for the right reasons, who don't like the sleazy director Jack Black, who, it's not a story of, okay, this group of people is bad, this group of people is good. The 76 version is really, like, the Americans are being a little exploitive. Even, like, the ones yeah. who are ostensibly supposed to root for. Right. These are not, like, really great people. They're all here for the oil. They're all hey, here to... it was the 70s. Yeah, we're all here to exploit a native culture, you know, and show them the wonders of the Bee Gees. Like, you know, that's, that's what we're here to do. Um, well, you can't tell by the way I use my walk. I'm a woman's man. No time to talk. Yeah, about. we have to bring them that. We have to bring them the culture, you know? Yeah. And very similar themes in the 2017 one because you've got i mean even the good guy characters all sign up in that movie to go and bomb the island as soon as they start like that's true yeah. you john know.
1: goodman who's a sympathetic character
0: still john goodman's bombing the island uh his uh assistant played by the guy who played dr dre in straight out compton Straight up, he's like, oh, man, this is awesome. We're going to bomb this island. Like, And you're yeah. really supposed to root for him. Yeah. You know, the military guys who are sympathetic mm. are, are like, hey, we're scientists now. Like, It's a big goof. And the Americans are portrayed as being really exploitive and nasty. And
1: so what's cool about uh, Skull Island is, uh, unlike the 70s version of King Kong, which is clearly a few years after the end of the Vietnam War, right? Yeah. There was a really interesting time in American cinema where... Okay, we, we're all kind of burned out by the reality of this long war in Vietnam. So there was a reason why Star Wars was such a big deal. It was, it was a way for us to work through themes that had nothing to do with the planet we lived on. right? You had these very super serious movies like The Deer Hunter that did try to confront... The Vietnam issue.
0: Baby. Yeah, so there
1: was there was really serious stuff going on, but then suddenly Lucas comes in and says, Well, you know what, movies should also be fun. Yeah. And so that blows up and takes off that way. And Kong is kind of in the middle. Yeah. That that King Kong is it's clearly an action spectacle. And it's not set right in Vietnam, but it's dealing with the aftermath of Vietnam. Yeah. So it's interesting to me, as somebody who kind of lived through that as a kid to see this new movie in 2017 say we're going to start our storyline on the last day of combat operations in Vietnam yeah
0: which is really kind of crazy um but it, it 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 very much Skull Island is also in dialogue with not just the previous Kong movies but other pieces of the canon I mean this is for both better and for worse There is a lot of apocalypse now in this movie. Which I'm happy to see. I mean, I I love it. It's awesome. But make no mistake, Samuel L. Jackson is just doing his best Brando as Kurtz. I mean, he's just, he's just, no, we didn't lose this war. We just left it. Like, okay, Samuel, sounds good. Sounds good, man. So
1: what do you think of his role in this? Does he hold that place? I mean, I don't think he meets Brando. He he does not achieve Brando in... Apocalypse Now, but no. how well does he do?
0: I think he does great. Um, the thing with Samuel L. Jackson is he takes so many roles these days. <laughs> I think... How big is his house? Oh, what is God, mortgage? it's huge. Well, he also has... He's also got those Siri ads, man! He's got <laughs> he's getting the Siri money! Yeah. Um, my Samuel L. Jackson impression can only be shouted. I, I have no, like, <laughs> indoor voice Samuel L. Jackson uh, impression. But I think uh, he takes so many roles, it can be difficult to discern which... What, what are the roles that he, like, cares about? And which are the ones that, like... He's like, man, I got mortgage to pay. Like, I think... Like, it's weird, because you also can't tell by the amount of screen time he has, because he very deeply cares about Mace Windu, despite the fact that Mace is on screen for, like, a total of 15 minutes in that trilogy. Yeah. He loves Mace Windu. Yeah. Yeah. As do I. Yeah. But uh, he... Uh, I think he really cares in this one. I think... I think... Mm, I'm not convinced, but go ahead. I, I like the... uh, inten- We've always said... My father and I have said... Uh, we have a lot of respect for actors. We know the craft is difficult. But anger is very easy to portray. Yeah, It's very easy to just shout. You know, yeah. you guys can call it chewing scenery. You can call it overacting. You can call it what Nicolas Cage does every day. But the point is, shouting is easy. Being angry is easy. And I would write this off as an easy role for him without those first couple introductory scenes. I think those introductory scenes of him sitting there, talking with his guys, his grip on reality is already not fully there. But he's not overplaying it. He's Uh, not up the river yet.
1: I guess. uh, To me... Personally. What makes Brando and the other figures in Apocalypse Now believable is, do you believe that they were soldiers? You have to believe that they were soldiers. Ooh, that's a good point. And, you know, I can believe that... you know, Sheen, I, I believe, yeah. was was who he portrayed on the screen. And my problem in watching Samuel L. Jackson in Kong Skull Island is I still see Samuel L. Jackson. At, at no point do I see him as kind of a, the burned-out colonel.
0: Yeah. You'll also find a lot of appreciation on this podcast for well-written military characters. A lot of the time, Hollywood will write military characters as either just kind of blindly dumb or just jarheads or, or they'll... It just won't be good, and actually now as we're talking about it, I did remember one thing that we had when we left the theater that we really didn't appreciate was Samuel never really takes command, like capital C, command. He's not really in charge of that Unit other than we're gonna go hunt my white whale, we're gonna go hunt King Kong. But like when they're trying to first encircle Kong and they're supposed to be like the best air recon unit in Vietnam, okay, that's a lot of tell, tell, tell. Now you have to show me in filmmaking. Yeah. You want to show, don't tell. When Kong is taking out like 30 helicopters just by like swatting randomly in the air, that doesn't say best air recon unit to me. That right. says a bunch of untrained amateurs who are letting a monkey who they could easily outmaneuver in terms of just altitude, yeah. swipe them out of the sky. And there's at one point where like they're coming at him from two different directions, and then he just jumps, and so they shoot each other. It's like, yeah. I really think if he's a good commander... Yeah, okay, you've turned me around. Okay, so Samuel L. sucks in this role. Um, <laughs>
1: no, he doesn't suck. I mean, he's always watchable. I like Samuel L. Jackson very much. But getting the military right is very hard, because I have two ideas. The difference in our population in our culture in our people are defined by two things one are you a parent right I've talked about this in other podcasts if you're a parent it changes your values it changes your priorities it changes the way you look at the world people who have never had children or that responsibility are different from people who have either uh, taken that on biologically or through foster care you know taken that responsibility for a young human and the other big dividing line is, have you been in war? Have you been shot at? I have never been shot at. So it would be hard for me to portray what that's like. And I actually like old movies because you can look at IMDb and you can see in the biography who actually was in World War II. Mm-hmm. You know, who actually served in Vietnam. And you can tell, I think, who those people are. Or there are really, really good actors who can show that. But, but basically, in real life... There's no substitute for that visceral experience of someone trying to kill you. Yeah. I can never fully understand what that's like because yeah. I didn't serve and get shot at.
0: Yeah. Well, that's why uh, Sergeant Appone, to use a good example, we have to have a good comparison to, to what we should think that Samuel L. is being or what he's going for. Sergeant Appone in Aliens, the actor who played Sergeant Appone was in Vietnam. Ah. He was a drill instructor, yeah. he is a trained Marine. If somebody on that set didn't have good trigger discipline, like if they had their finger around the trigger but didn't intend to shoot, he would snatch it out of their hands and slap them, you know, because he's not going to mess around with this stuff. And you can see in Aliens, which we'll also have to cover at some point, that... This is somebody who takes capital C command. This is a right. this is an individual who has been shot at, who can bring that to the fictional realm of aliens, yeah. and turn this cohesive group, even when they're getting their butts kicked by the aliens and they narratively need to lose this fight, you feel like they're losing it for the right reasons.
1: Yeah, and there's a reason why Gene Hackman, in his career, just kept getting cast over and over and over as very authoritarian or even military figures, right? There's a reason why he's in... Um, Crimson Tide, right? Because he was a Marine, right? He, I don't know that he got shot at. I'm not sure he had active duty, but he trained with and was a Marine. So uh, to go back to Skull Island, you know, it it is apocalypse now. It is a unit of military guys. So actually it's good that you referenced aliens because that's a very similar narration, right? The story of a military unit up against a, a supernatural and strange monster, That's the plot of Aliens, and it's the plot of Skull Island.
0: Yes, we've gone in, and we're in over our heads, and we think we're the baddest people alive, and we're getting our butts kicked right out of the gate.
1: Hey, it's also the plot of The Predator.
0: Yeah, hey, I love The Predator. God, stick (laughs) around.
1: (laughs) So, how well do we think that that storyline, which we have seen many times, how well do we think that played out in Skull Island?
0: I think it plays out fairly well. I don't think it's, you know, this is not a... Uh, uh, a perfect movie by any means Um, but I do think it has a very solid identity I think it knows what it wants to do I think it knows the story that it wants to tell and as I talked about with the 2005 Kong, it doesn't overstay its welcome this is like an hour and a half movie
1: yeah it did feel pretty fast this
0: movie is like here we go you got yourself some characters you're going to drop them in a crazy situation (laughs) done um, I still think there's time that you can cut out of that and stuff I would have liked to see expanded on. Such as? Um, we'll get rid of Hiddleston. Hiddleston doesn't do... Yeah. Tom Hiddleston is in this movie, and as my father and I have joked, he is on there so that you can have a pretty white boy on the poster. You know, he's, he's not...
1: Yeah, I actually like him as an actor in the other stuff I've seen him in. <laughs> Obviously, we like him as Loki in he's the Marvel movies. But he's really nothing in this movie. He, if they wanted him to be Indiana Jones, he is not.
0: No, and he's not... not... It it, it it part of it is the writing he does not get much to do, no. but also part of it is that he doesn 't really seem to bring anything super different that anyone else couldn 't have brought to this role when right. you cast someone, you cast someone because you think they can embody the character in a way that nobody else can
1: he 's such a flat character that 's why you hear so many people talking about john C. riley right who yeah. <laughs> who's a great character he 's got a great backstory, he ties the whole movie together he 's funny. He is actually the central male character, I think I because him and Samuel, I think. Well, uh, I was not that impressed with Samuel L. Jackson. I understand how you could say that Samuel L. Jackson is the central male character, but it's not Hiddleston.
0: No, it's not Hilston. Hiddleston. Hiddleston is an accessory to this, and I am totally befuddled as to why his name is, is first on the credits for no other reason than like financial reasons. Like Sure. It it's just Well, John C.
1: Riley's not gonna open a movie, right? John I mean, C. Riley's not gonna open a, a movie and, and
0: Samuel L. Jackson as well, almost at this point, is is kind of like I don't know if he could headline that sort of film. I mean, Kong is the real star of this movie. Yeah, of course. And we should talk about how they portray Kong, and they do something that I have always loved that my generation seems to do with these uh, monster or kaiju movies, which is they portray him as something who is in conversation with the canon, but who is in some ethereal, weird way almost above it. You know, like Godzilla in the 2014 Godzilla movie... Is affected by the nuclear bomb, scarred, changed, but he is a god. He is something beyond us. The Kong is worshipped as a god on this island, and he mm-hmm. has been in every interpretation, but this place has a very large emphasis on that. I mean, it shows places of worship for Kong, it talks about his lineage. I mean, there are Kongs that have come before on this island who are now extinct. He is the last of his kind. Mm -hmm.
1: Um, Yeah, no, that's a very good point uh, that Samuel just made because me growing up with the earlier versions of Kong and other monster movies and and sci-fi, the humans are always the central agent, right? I mean, I grew up in a time post-World War II where we had a great uh, confidence, right? And that bled its way into our storytelling where... You know, Star Trek, the original series, you know, we are the pinnacle of evolution and we're going to go out to the stars and we're going to solve all these
0: problems. we are going to make out with all the moon babes we find.
1: (laughs) But now Samuel's generation is seeing that that has eroded to the point where we see ourselves as part of the universe, not the masters of the universe, but in some cases, like especially with aliens and now here with this new version of Kong, we're kind of small. We are part of the environment, but not the dominant part yeah. of the environment. And I do like that as well.
0: Yeah. And John Goodman makes that, I mean, almost just explicit in the script itself when he's like, Ancient beings ruled this earth long before we did and will be here long after we are gone. Right. The universe turns with or without us. And that is something you'll see, I think, prevalent in filmmaking of all stripes and all colors coming from my generation, just because we facing threats like global warming, existential threats like that, where there isn't a solution. We are, in terms of, uh, you know, we can't just punch it, you know? We can't just, <laughs> right. it is an existent. you know, are we, we have all of these advanced monitoring tools, and we can see so far into space, and those are a miracle, and I appreciate those. And there's nothing so far. Right. It's just us. Right. You know, like, it's... And
1: just because we have the Hubble telescope that shows us that doesn't mean we can go there or change it.
0: Yeah, because we just found those three new planets, and that's awesome, but we're not going to get there in my life. (laughs) Yeah, so what? Yeah. All right,
1: so to wrap this up, so we've got four main Kong movies, and you'll notice we didn't touch on any of the spinoffs, because after the first black and white movie came out, you know, they cranked out King Kong movies. Godzilla vs. King Kong which we might get to when we talk about Godzilla since they're trying to bring those two monsters together again. We're pretty happy about that. But I think for this discussion it was appropriate to just look at these four kind of tent pole origin stories, right? Yeah. That's what we focused on.
0: So if you show people, like which ones it, which it, ones do you show? Well,
1: people? let's let's force ourselves to do the hard work. Which one would you show? One.
0: Ooh. You only oh, get one. Oh god. You get one. Oh, uh, I get one. I'm going to go uh, I'm going to be <laughs> I'm going to be John Cusack's character in High Fidelity and just go with the safe answer. I'm just going to say 1930s Kong. It's important. It's vital. It's not too long. It knows exactly what it wants to be. It has beautiful, handcrafted animation. And it's an elemental story. It is a story of of a man who is, or, or an ape, who is brought into a world he doesn't understand, who is mistreated... And as Quentin Tarantino will remind you over and over, because he knows so much about movies, it's about <laughs> slavery. It's a metaphor for slavery. Thank you, QT. We get it. <laughs>
1: and wait a minute. My answer can't be King Homer, can it?
0: Oh, God. It can be King Homer.
1: No, Woo-hoo! no, no, I can't do King Homer. <laughs> we
0: never get rid of the uh, the uh, bathing beauty. Yes, that's what they
1: said. So, I think I covered that up pretty well. So, actually, this is really interesting, because we're going to now take opposite views okay. from what you would think. From our biographies. Yeah. Samuel took the very traditional, old-school, old-canon view of <laughs> Kong. And I'm going to say 2017 really? Skull Island. Yeah, nice. buddy. Nice. <laughs> because I think the 70s one is not accessible enough. There were enough problems with the 2005 Peter Jackson one. I, yeah. I would... Before Skull Island, I probably would have said the Peter Jackson one. Really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But you know what? If I have those four to pick from... Skull Island, baby. All right,
0: there we go. Well, thank you guys very much for listening. I've been Samuel, and I'm Bentley, and this is the Review Podcast.